begin by cultivating your motivation and really feeling so happy to be able to hear teachings on emptiness because emptiness is the medicine that is going to cure our disease of afflictions and karma that cause us so much suffering in cyclic existence. And so just as a patient would be so overjoyed when they finally have the medicine that's going to cure their disease, then let us also be very happy to hear the teachings on the nature of reality and have a strong determination to put them into practice not only for our own benefit, but in order to attain full Buddhahood, in order to benefit all sentient beings. been in Pennsylvania for the last week uh, attending His Holiness Dalai Lama's teachings on the uh, Great Exposition and the Stages of the Path, which were really remarkable. And His Holiness was so amazingly skillful in consistently bringing up emptiness and dependent arising and their complementary nature and then weaving this in to many other topics of the long run. And it was just really quite amazing. So I think we're all invigorated by this. So uh, one of the topics that His Holiness did not cover in depth when he was going through the long run chemo, considering it was this big, um, was the seven-point uh, refutation of Chandakirti that disproves inherent existence. And so that's the point that we're at right now, right? So I think I, I had um, mentioned last time this one quotation from uh, a fundamental vehicle sutra and it's uh, I don't know the Tibetan refuge but in the Pali refuge it was in the uh, the connected discourses and it was actually spoken by a bhikshuni by a fully ordained nun and the Tibetan translation of the verse says self is a demonic mind you have a wrong view these compositional aggregates are empty there is no living being in them. Just as one speaks of a cart or a chariot in dependence upon a collection of parts, so we use the convention living being in dependence upon the aggregates. Okay? And so now we're going to go into that verse and, uh, and expand on it 
using Chandrakirti's uh, seven-point refutation. Now, Chandrakirti's seven points actually came from Nagarjuna's five points, and Chandrakirti added two more. Many of us are used to the four-point analysis, meditating on emptiness, and uh, these seven points also fit in with that. They're included in the last two points. In the four-point analysis, the first one is identifying the object of negation. The second one is establishing the pervasion. In other words, if things, the object of negation is inherent existence. If things existed as they appeared, then they should be findable either among the basis uh, of designation or as something totally separate from it. There's no third alternative. That's the second point. And then in the third point, if we use the example of the I or the self, the person, then the person is either one with the aggregates, one and the same with the aggregates inherently. That's one of the alternatives for where to where you have to search to find an inherently existent I. And then the fourth point is, uh, you know, the, is asking, is the self totally separate, different, unrelated to the aggregates? So third point is the self is not one and the same as the aggregates, and the fourth is it's not completely different from the aggregates either. Okay. Now, the, the five points that Nagarjuna meant, uh, you know, addressed, the first two of those is it's one with the parts, okay, uh, and the second is it's different from the parts, okay, so one with the basis of designation, separate from the basis of designation. And then the other three were different permutations of those two. Okay, but the two main ones are either it's not the same as, it's not different from. And then similarly in Chandrakirti, when he added two more, those also were able to be subsumed, you know, in it's not one with the aggregates, the self isn't one with the aggregates, and the self isn't separate from the aggregates. Okay? Yeah? So you'll see this as, as we go through. But it's... Um, important to remember that we are looking for an inherently existent object. We're not looking for the conventional object. Okay? The reason is that it's because we think the inherently existent one exists, whereas it doesn't. That's why we've got to search for it. And we've got to negate it. We've got to refute its existence. And we're not looking for the conventional object. Okay, because we don't have to refute its existence. And also because we're using ultimate analysis in doing this investigation. And ultimate analysis cannot be applied on a conventionally existent object because conventionally existent things are not in the, uh, the view, the perspective of a mind analyzing the ultimate. Remember before we were saying that just because the uh, ultimate analysis doesn't find something or doesn't see something doesn't mean that it refutes its existence? 
because just as the eye doesn't hear sound, the eye can't refute the existence of sound. It's not in the purview of the eye consciousness to hear sound, so it's not in the purview of ultimate analysis to find conventional things or to refute their existence altogether. Okay, so that's why we're really examining and looking for inherently existent things. And that's why this first thing of identifying the object of negation is so hard because we can't distinguish between inherently existent things and, and conventionally existent things because in our mind they're complete union oneness. You know, and we've been, we're so used to things appearing truly existent and then we're so used to assenting to the appearance of true existence that we don't even recognize we're doing it. Okay? And so I remember when I was studying this uh, emptiness once with Geshe Sonnen we would develop all these questions over and over, things we didn't understand. Genla, this, 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 this. And then he kept saying, it's just because you don't understand the object of negation. And he was completely right. You know, that was the real thing. We, you know, finding the object of negation. Now, of course, you can't really find inherent existence because it doesn't exist. So we're just developing some kind of general idea of what inherent existence would be if it existed. Okay? So, you know, inherent existence is that thing that, uh, you know, like in the case of the self, it exists in the aggregates, but also kind of separate in the aggregates. Okay? That's one way of defining that object of negation. The second way is anything uh, that exists more than being in labeled independence upon the collection of its parts. Anything more than what is merely labeled independence upon the collection of its parts. That is inherent existence. So that's what we're looking for. Now, when we're looking for it, there's only two places to look for it. In the parts or separate from the parts. Okay? In the basis of designation or separate from the de basis of designation. Okay? So now, you know, Chandrakirti's seven points are addressing this. Okay? So the seven points are, yeah, to see if you know, the inherently existent whatever that we're looking for is first, one with its parts. Second, different from its parts. Okay. Three, possessing its parts. Four, dependent upon its parts. Five, what its parts depend upon. Six, the collection of its parts. And seven, the shape or arrangement of its parts. Okay, so we're going to be looking and investigating whether an inherently existent car or person or whatever 
exists in any of these seven ways in relationships to its parts. Okay, so we'll get into this a little bit more. Okay, so let's look at, um, we're going to use the example of the, of the car. In ancient times, they used an example of a chariot or a cart. Because I think, you know, people were like, they really liked their chariots. They were pretty proud of them. Or if you were a farmer, you were really attached to your cart, you know, because it was how the whole way you made your livelihood. Okay. So we'll use our car, because I think people nowadays are pretty attached to their cars, aren't they? Yeah. All you have to do is get a little scratch in it, and you'll see how attached you are to it. Okay. <laughs> so... Let's use the example first of the car and how the car exists. And we'll go through these seven points in relationship to the car. And then afterwards, we'll go through it in relationship to the person. Okay. So in relationship to the car, first question, is the car inherently the same as or one with its parts? Is it inherently the same as or one with its parts? Okay, if a car were exactly the same as its parts, they would be completely indifferentiable. In other words, you couldn't separate out the car and its parts because they would be completely one, completely identical, completely the same. Now, what's the problem with saying that the car and the parts, like the axle, the wheel, the engine, the seats, the spark plugs, I don't know what all is in a car, you know. But what's the fault with saying that a car is complete, uh, completely identical with its parts? Well, the fault is, is that since there are many parts, then if the car were identical, then however many parts you have, that's how many cars you should have. Okay, because they're identical, remember? So if you have 50 parts, you should have 50 cars. Or, the second problem with this is, since you only have one car, then you should only have one part. Because remember, they're identical. They should be exactly the same in all ways. So those are two problems that come. A third problem, the language they use to describe it, is they say agent and object would be the same. What this means is that the designated object, the car, and the basis of designation, the parts, would be completely the same. Okay? If the car and its parts were completely the same, then you wouldn't need to have the word car or the idea car because in saying collection of parts, that would automatically express the car. Do you get what I'm saying? You don't get it. If things are completely one and the same, then you don't even need two words. You don't need the word designated object and basis of designation. You don't need the word car and parts of the car because the car and the parts of the car are the same. 
So then you could get rid of the word car and by saying the parts the parts drove up the driveway, you would understand that the car had arrived. Okay? And you could go out and say, I'm going shopping for a collection of parts today. You know? Or I found this jazzy collection of parts that were all blue. You know, because the, the collection of parts and the car would be exactly identical. So you wouldn't need two words for them. Okay, do you get the fault? The fault in saying that? Okay, so that's what happens if the, the car, which is the designated object, and the parts of the car, you know, or the collection of parts, however you want to describe it, if those two are exactly inherently one and the same. That's the first point. Second point is the car and the parts of the car are the car and the parts of the car inherently separate. Okay. Now what happens if they're totally separate and different from each other, then they're totally unrelated. Totally unrelated. Okay. And in that case, we would be able to see the car and the parts of the car totally separately. Okay? It would mean that you could look somewhere and there's the car and you could see the car, but there wouldn't need to be any car parts there. You wouldn't need an engine and an axle and spark plugs and, and um, what else? And a hood and a roof and a steering wheel and gas pedal and brakes. You wouldn't need any of those things because the parts in the car were totally separate and unrelated. She could have the car without having the parts. Or conversely, you could have the parts arranged in that certain order, but you wouldn't have a car there. Now that's not true, is it? Why not? Because there's some kind of dependent relationship between the parts and the car. They aren't inherently separate. Okay? So we would either be able to see, you know, we would be able to see them as totally separate. Yeah, at different times. You could see the car without the parts. You could see the part without having the car. And also, there would be no reason to label independence upon the parts, label car. Because they were, to they were totally separate and unrelated. Or put it just this way, if, you know, the validity of labeling car independence upon the parts, you, you could just as well label, label um, anteater independence upon the parts because the car and the anteater are equal in being totally unrelated to the parts. Getting it? If the parts of the car and the car are totally separate and unrelated, okay, then just as the car is totally separate and not dependent at all or related to at all the parts, so is an anteater. Anteater has nothing to do with, the, with an axle and an engine and a steering wheel and brakes. 
So just as you could, you know, if you wanted to uh, make a connection between the parts and the car, then you could easily, just as soon, make the connection between the parts and the anteater because they're the same in being completely separate and unrelated to the parts. Okay. So we can see that's totally ridiculous too, isn't it? Okay. Now you might get a little bit confused here. Wait, wait, wait a minute, you know. Huh? They're not one. They're not different. Wait a minute. What's the story here? Okay. Now, here's where this thing... Remember I talked about one and one nature and different and different natures before? Okay. So, the parts and the car are not one because they aren't identical but they are the same nature in the sense that there's a dependent relationship and that you can't have one without having the other they exist at the same time so the parts in the car are not one but they are one nature similarly the parts and the car are different, but they aren't different natures. Okay? They're different because when you say car and when you say parts of a car, you have different things that come to mind. So they're different. But they aren't different nature because they're one nature because they depend on each other. Okay? So, the, the car and the parts are not one. Okay? They are different, but they're not inherently different. Okay, so here you have to add the word inherently. They're different, but they're not inherently existent. The car and the parts are one nature, but they're not inherently one nature. Because if they were inherently one nature, they would be identical and undifferentiable. Okay? So we're really, what this whole thing is doing is it's asking us to really check up and investigate What's the relationship between the car and the parts? How do these two things fit together? What is the relationship? Because okay. they, they aren't exactly the same, are they? And yet they're not totally unrelated, are they? So we're investigating here. We're trying to find something that is the car truly existent car and so it's got to be either in the aggregates one with the aggregates or totally inherently separate from the aggregates that's what we're investigating okay now the third question the third point is does the car inherently possess its parts because our mind could say, well, okay, car is not one with the parts. It's not separate, inherently separate from the parts. 
but the, but the car inherently possesses its parts. There's some kind of relationship there that you cannot tear apart. It inherently possesses its parts. Now, in terms of possession, there's two ways something can possess, one thing can possess another. Okay? So, let's say, uh, okay, let's say there's a person who has a dog. You can possess a dog, you know, you as the owner can possess the dog. Okay? In that case, the owner and the dog are separate phenomena, aren't they? Yeah, they're different phenomena. They aren't related. You can have the owner, you can have the dog. They're separate. So that's one way of ownership in which they're, they're, set, they're different phenomena. Another way of ownership is in the same way that a person possesses their ear. Okay? person possesses the ear, but the ear is part of the person. It's part of the designation, of, uh, basis the designation of the person. So there's two ways of possessing something. Yeah. But these two ways of possessing boil down to the first two points. Because if a person possesses a dog, then it's like one thing being unrelated to the other. If you talk about the person possessing their ear, it's like one thing being the same nature with the other. Okay. So you see the, these two ways of possession, they come down to actually the first two points. We've already negated the possibility of the first two points. So then there, there can be no way here that the car can inherently possess its parts. Okay, because it would have to either possess the parts in the same way as a person possesses a dog, which it doesn't, or it would have to possess its parts in the same way a person possesses his ear, and it, the car doesn't possess the parts that way either. Okay? So the third one got negated. Okay? Then the fourth question. Is the car inherently dependent upon its parts? Okay? Now here's a few new vocabulary words. Okay, and you'll see them in different contexts, and there's different ways of translating them. Sometimes it's translated as support and supported. It's not a very good translation. It's a little bit confusing. The support means uh, the basis of designation, and the supported means what is supported by that basis, which is the designated object. So in this case, the support would be the parts of the car, and the supported would be the car. Or another way of translating it, if you don't like support and supported, because it's translated support and supported, it's ten and ten pi, I think, is because the, the parts of the car support the car in the sense that, you know, you have to have the, the parts there before you can have the car. Another way to translate it is basis and dependent. In other words, the, the basis is the part or the support, and then the dependent object is 
you know, what's dependent upon that, the supported, which would be the car. So the basis would be the parts, and the dependent would be the car. Okay? So is the, the car inherently dependent upon its parts? Okay. In this way of asking the question, what comes to mind is kind of first you have the parts, yeah, and the parts are prominent, and then the car is somehow inside the parts because the car depends upon the parts, so it's somehow inside the parts. So the analogy that they give often is a lion inside of a forest. So the forest is like the collection of trees. You know, it's a collection of trees. It's like the parts of the car. And the lion is something that roams around in the forest. Okay? So sometimes we can see, you know, when you analyze this thing, what's the relationship between the whole, you know, the car, or the part possessor, sometimes it's translated as whole, sometimes as part possessor, and the parts. Again, we're analyzing this relationship. What's the relationship there? You know? And we can see sometimes when, it, when we're looking at it, we can think of all the parts, you know, and you mentally put, okay, there's the axle, the hood, and the, ener- and the engine, and the tires, and the back seat, and the front seat, and the glove compartment and the trunk and the windows and the steering wheel and the gas pedal and the brakes and the clutch and the gears and the spark plugs and the hood and then somehow in there there's a car yeah can you can you see how that is how the way our mind looks at it the parts are prominent and somewhere inside the parts there's a car so that's that's how you can See how it's like the analogy of the forest with the lion roaming in it? Okay? The trees are prominent. And the lion is kind of somewhere inside of there. Okay? So if we look at the relationship between the basis and the dependent, between the parts of the car and the car, okay? Are the parts of the car really prominent like that and then the car is somehow just like a lion that's separate from from the parts but roaming around inside of them is that the way it is that you have all this collection of parts and then there's a car kind of roaming around somewhere you know inside the parts but you can't exactly see it because the parts are hiding it is that the way it is no Okay, so this way of analyzing the relationship is, again, looking at the car and the parts as something different. Yeah, it boils down into, into, you know, they aren't inherently different. Okay, now, in the fifth one, we're going to reverse this and ask, do the parts inherently depend upon the car? So when you ask that question, do the parts inherently depend upon the car? There you get the feeling as if the car is there first. And then you kind of get the parts to come and fill it in. 
you know, like you have the car first, and then you, you put in the parts of the car. Now, can, you, can you see how your mind constructs it that way? So that analogy is like you have a bowl, and then you put yogurt in it. So the bowl is the, the um, support, you know, the basis, or the bowl here would, would be actually, the bowl would be more like the car, you know, and because cars there first, and then the yogurt that you pour inside it, of it is more like the parts of the car. Okay? So can you see how sometimes your mind, when you analyze this relationship, sometimes you, you put all, you take all the parts and you imagine all the parts coming together, and then there's a little car somewhere in them. So that's the fourth one. Or another way to look at it is you have the kind of outline of the car and then you fill it in by putting the parts there. Okay? But both of them boil down to the car and the parts being inherently separate, which they aren't, you know. They can't exist that way. Okay? Or another way of... Another way, um, Jeffrey sometimes uses the analogy, you know, instead of like the um, the bowl and the yogurt, it's like mayonnaise on top of bread or butter on top of bread. You know, the butter covers the whole thing and holds it together. Okay, so sometimes we get that image of the car covers the whole thing and just holds the, the parts together. So that's, again, you know, do the parts inherently depend on the car? Car is there first. The car is the big thing, and it's what holds the parts together. Yeah. But is it? You know, is there a car there that's first? Is there a car that holds all the parts of the car together to make it a car? Do you have something out there findable that is the car that holds the parts together and makes them into a car? No. Do you have something that's roaming around in the parts that is the car? That is the car? No. Then we look at the sixth point. So the sixth point is the car as a collection of the parts. Now this one's very tricky because it seems like the car should be the collection of the parts. You put all the parts together and that's the car, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's what they do in Detroit or what they used to do in Detroit, you know, is they put the car together. So the collection of parts should be the car. Now the parts with, the problem with this is if the collection of the parts were inherently the car, okay, then even if the parts were piled up any which old way, you would still have a car. Okay. Now, if you went into a car part and you started 
you know, put you put four tires there and then you threw on an engine and a hood and a this and a that. And you had a whole pile there of different parts. You ha- you would have a collection of the parts, but would you have a car? Would you go buy that and expect to dry it drive it out of the place? No, because you would just have a whole heap of parts, and that wouldn't be the car because you couldn't drive it. So you see, the collection of the parts cannot be the car. It seems like they should, like the collection should be, doesn't it? It really seems like the collection of the parts should be the car. But if it were, the collection could be piled up any which old way and you would have the car. Okay? So that's one fault. Another fault would again be that the basis of designation, the collection of the parts, and the designated object, the car, would be completely the same. If the collection of the parts were the car, then the basis of designation, which is the collection of the parts, and the car, which is the designated object, would be completely the same. Okay? And again, there you have all the difficulties of what happens if the car and the parts are the same. Because then we wouldn't need the word car, because just by saying parts of car, you would have the idea of car. You know? Or just as saying car, you could step into the, the car repair shop and drive away a collection of parts. Okay? So the car is not the collection of the parts. So here we're really seeing that there's got to be the difference, a difference between the basis of designation and the designated object. They can't be completely the same. But part of the whole appearance of of true existence or inherent existence is they appear the same. Okay. For example, you know, when we look at this, we say, we feel completely comfortable saying, here's the cup, and here's the collection of parts of the cup. You know, if somebody were to ask you, where's the collection of parts of the cup, you would point to this, wouldn't you? And if somebody said, here, where are the cups, you would point to this. And it seems to us like they're the same, that the collection of parts and the, and the, and the cup are, are the same. You point to the same thing. But they aren't the same. They aren't the same. Because if they were the same, you could have the handle and a bunch of... If I drop the cup and we have a bunch of parts of a cup, you could put them all together and instead of having a mess, you would still have a cup. But you don't. You have a mess. Okay? So the designated object and the basis of designation are not the same. Okay. Then the mind says, well, okay, the collection isn't the same. But the collection of the parts arranged in a certain way, that's the car. Mm 
know, it's the shape of the car that is the car. Okay, you put all these parts together, you get a certain shape, that's the car. Now we got it. Okay, so the seventh point is we think we've really got it now, okay? The car is the shape of the part. Well, this also doesn't work, okay? Because you have the shape of the individual parts, okay? When you put the individual parts together, the individual parts still have their own shape, don't they? So then how can the shape of the car be the car? Because the shape of the individual parts is still the same. And the shape of the individual parts is not the car, is it? Okay. And if the shape of the parts existed inherently, then no new shape could arise when you put the parts together. Because remember, something that's inherently existent can't change because it exists independent of other things. So you would have all these shapes of the parts, you would put them together, and you couldn't have any new shape. So, you, so then you can't. And the, the shape of the individual parts certainly aren't the car, are they? The car is not round. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it can't be the shape. And also, it can't be the shape because the shape is uh, an object of visual consciousness. Okay, but the car can also be touched. If the car were the shape, then the car should only be able to be seen. You shouldn't be able to touch it. The shape is only an object of visual consciousness. So then the car should only be an object of visual consciousness, which would mean that you can't touch the car. That doesn't make sense, any sense either. Okay? So, the way that the, part, the car and the parts are related, okay, is, according to the Prasangikas, is that everything exists, you know, independence on something by being merely designated, merely imputed, merely labeled independence upon the collection of, of its parts. So it's labeled independence upon the part, but it is not the parts. Okay? So it really makes you think and examine there. It's labeled independence upon the parts, but it's not the parts. And then when you really look at this, you could see, okay, you stack all the parts up in a certain arrangement. 
they still don't become a car until your mind goes and has the conception of car. Okay? Because it's like one of those Escher drawings. Yeah, the Escher drawings. They have all these shapes. But it isn't until your mind puts the shapes into a certain way that you have a hand. And then, boop, your mind conceives the shapes in another way and you have another object. I love using Escher's paintings as an analogy because I think, you know, it's so clear when you look at his paintings how it's the conceptual mind that pulls out of this, you know, mishmash of colors and shapes, pulls something out and sees it. And it's quite interesting when you study early childhood development, which I did many years ago, you know, I can't even say how many years ago, but uh, and I should probably do it again because it would, they've probably discovered new things. But like, for example, you know, babies don't see the car. They would see lots of different colors, lots of different shapes, but they wouldn't even necessarily put all these shapes and colors together to even label it one object. Okay, forget about labeling it car. A baby, you know, may not even conceptually put these things together to make one object out of it. Baby may actually see these things as completely different. Very interesting, you know. I mean, sometime you might have been high on drugs and looked at something around you, and instead of putting it together and labeling it and conceptualizing it, you just start seeing it as a bunch of parts. Okay? And then you realize how the mind, the conceptual mind, goes, shoop, gets an idea gives it a name, even, you know, and, and the name doesn't have to be language because a baby doesn't have language yet and a cat doesn't have language, but it does have the term and concept, you know, it doesn't have to be a vocal sound, but it puts the information together and makes something out of it. Okay. So even the way of saying one thing is our conceptual mind. Okay. For example, we're sitting here in this room. How many rooms are there? There's one room, right? We're sitting in one room. When you, you can look around and this is one room. Look around it right now, whatever room you're sitting in, you know, people who are watching. It's one room, isn't it? One room. And you can feel the roomness and the oneness of this one room that we're sitting in. But then look a little bit closer, okay? There's a table, there's carpeting, there's a bell, there's a telephone, there's some paper, there's various people, there's chairs, there's a bookshelf, there's a fan and a lamp and a box of tissues and an end table. Do you have one thing anymore? Is there one thing? Yeah, look around the room now and look and see all the different things in it. Look at the clock. You know, there's a wall there and a wall there and there's a clock and a painting and a bookshelf and a bulletin board. 
all these different chairs and the table and the carpeting and another wall and the glulon beam, okay, and the altar and another wall and the balustrade and the, the lamp and the painting. When you look around, do you see one room? Do you see one room? No, you see many different objects, don't you? Is there a difference in your mind between when you look around and see many different objects and when you look around and you see one room? Is there a difference in your mind? Okay? Think of your body. You know, because we've done the meditation here about the parts of the body. Yeah? So put out all the parts of your body, you know, kidney and spleen and liver and intestines and two arms and two ears and two eyes and, you know, what do you have, you know, the thing, the bump in the middle of your throat, what's it called? Adam's apple. Your Adam's apple and, you know, and your tendons and your muscles. And there's many things there, aren't there? And then your, your mind can just switch like half a degree and there's one body. So is it many or is it one? Is it a body or is it a bunch of parts? Okay. Do you see how you can go back and forth between the two of them? Nothing on the outside changes. How your mind looks at it changes. Somehow when I'm on retreat, I, I tend to be in places with trees. And I like to sit outside and look at a tree. You know, you could spend a long time. Just take look at one tree. Yeah. And, you know, and you do it. Okay, there's one tree. And what is one tree about that? What exactly is the tree there? And what is one tree? And then you kind of look at it slightly different with your conceptual mind and you see many, many, many branches and you see a trunk and you see roots and you see branches and you see needles and like what's the tree about that and what's one tree about that there's actually a bunch of different objects there not one object there there's a bunch of different objects there why am I saying one there's actually a lot and they're all different, and none of them are a tree. Are they? The tree is made up of things that aren't a tree. The car is made up of non-car things. Okay. Our body is made up of non-body things. Anything that is, is made up of things that are not it. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? Okay, especially when you apply it to the self and you think, I am made up of things that are not me. Yeah. My body's not me, my mind's not me. All these different things aren't me. But I'm made up of non-me's. 
Yeah? So here you get some idea of what con- conceive and label means and how our mind puts things together to make it one object or to make it many objects. And we begin to see how the collection of parts is not the object. Okay. Because collection of parts is a conceptual designation. Yeah? Collection of parts is not a car. It's just a collection of parts. The car is made up of things that are not car. You get a bunch of non-cars together and a car appears. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You collect together a bunch of non-cars, a bunch of things that are not cars, and out of that you get a car. How amazing! Where did that car come from? Because you brought together all these things that are not a car. Where did the car come from? You know, is there, did all those things that are not a car coming together give you a car there? Is there a car somewhere in all those parts, like the lion in the forest? Or is there... You know, the car that's holding all the non-car things together and making them into a car? Is that how you got a car? You have non-car things together and then you wrap them up in this thing called a car that holds them together and makes them into one thing. How come when the car comes up the road, all the parts come together? They're all different things. They're all non-cars. How come when the car comes up the road, all these things that aren't a car come with it? How come? Yeah? If the car and the parts, if the car is made up of things that are not a car, you should be able to separate them out, shouldn't you? Here are all these things that are not a car, and here's a car. So how come when you draw, the car comes up the road, the non-car parts come with it? How come? You know, there's some relationship between the parts and the whole. There's a relationship there, isn't there? Okay, and that's why when the car comes up, the parts come up. Okay. They were totally separate things. You would be able to drive the car up and you would leave all the parts at the bottom of the hill. The parts come up, but the parts aren't the car. Because every single part is a non-car. Every single part is not a car. Where did that car come from? And when you're shelling out all that money, what in the world is it that you're buying? Because there's no car there. But on the other hand, you drive the car off the parking lot, don't you? Okay. So what we're getting at 
if there's a conventionally existent car that you drive off that parking lot, but when you look for a car that exists beyond being merely imputed and dependent upon the parts, you cannot find a car. And that's why that car appears like magic when you put the parts together in a certain way and your mind looks at it in a certain way. It's not sufficient for the parts to be put together in a certain way. The mind has to put those parts together in a way and call it a car. But you can't find that car. But you can still drive it. You can drive the car that you can't find. That's a good trick when you park in one of those parking garages and you can't find your car. Oh, good. I can drive a car I can't find. Okay. You drive the conventional car, but you can't find an inherently existent car. Nowhere can you find it. It doesn't exist. So what is this conventional car that you're driving if you can't find it there? What is it? Okay. So this is something you just spend some time in your meditation with it. And just really look at this. Now see... You know, get a feeling of how the mind conceives and labels things. Okay. Now, we just have a few minutes. Your questions? Yeah. The question when you were talking about the um, collection, the, the object, the collection of its parts, uh-huh. if you arrange them in a certain way, uh-huh. where does function come into that? Because I could say that I put the parts of the car together, it might at some point resemble what I think of as a car. Uh-huh. But it wouldn't function as a car. So is there does function come into that when we look at collections? Yeah. Now this is a very interesting question, you know, and it's come up a few times, you know. Does function have to come into there? Because what would happen if you put together a bunch of paper parts and put them together, would you have a car? Okay. Well, the paper parts aren't actually the parts of a car. You can't really label car independence upon paper parts, can you? Because the paper parts can't function as a car. So it seems that function has to be in there somewhere. Yeah, but it's, you know, I'm still examining this thing about the definition, you know, collecting different opinions. But it seems like, you know, the definition is not the basis of designation. But the, ba- but the definition does talk something about function, does it? Doesn't it? So it seems that... But still, just the parts alone, the parts have to be able to function in a certain way. Hmm? Yeah? My question or comment on that is I was confused when I was 
Yes. Or like a clock that doesn't work. Yes. It's not like you stop calling it a clock. Yeah. So a clock is still a car, but it's no longer functions as what we want it. Uh-huh. Okay. So this is an interesting one. It's a broken clock. A clock. Broken clock. A clock. Is, it, is a dead body a person? Is a dead body a person? No. No, a dead body is not a person. Even though sometimes we'll look and we'll say, oh, he looks so beautiful in his casket. You know, the embalmer did such a good job. They look so beautiful. So sometimes we talk at, like the body is the person. But at other times we'll look at it, no, the body's not the person. The person's gone. The person died, the body's there. Yeah? So is a broken clock a clock? When you look at the clock, I mean, you know, unless you just looked at it and saw the time, it wouldn't matter. If you take a picture of it, you wouldn't even know that it was a broken clock versus mm-hmm. one that was still keeping time. Yeah. Okay, so if you took a picture of it, you wouldn't know it was a broken clock. You would say, there's a clock. Yeah. On the other hand, if somebody sold you something like that, you would go back and you would say, you didn't sell me a clock. You know, you sold me a bunch of rubbish and I want my money back. You didn't sell me a clock. question is, when you apply this reasoning to the eye, it doesn't seem to work. It's like, okay, I'm not my body, I'm not my mind, so what? I'm here. Okay. The reason you come out with that blase answer at the end of your meditation is because you haven't identified the object of negation. That's the whole key. Because you've really got to get that sense of me. That me that we really feel exists. That me that's so important that's experiencing everything. Yeah? That me that we take for granted, that our whole world revolves around. Look for that one. So, to do the seventh point with the car, would you use the, the car somewhat as analogous to the object to be negated? As you go up to a car and just look at it the way that you look at it and then use the analysis? Yeah. Yeah. And then? Yeah. So the the question is, could you go up to a car and just sit and, you know, instead of how I look at trees, look at a car and kind of analyze and see if you can find the car there? Yeah. Do that. Do that. Yeah. The people out there, when, when you get in your car to drive to work tomorrow morning, you know, ask yourself what you're getting inside of. And what you're driving. Is it one car or is it many parts? What's the relationship between the car and the parts? Are they the same? 
Did I differ? Where does the car, where does the car come from? So again, asking about function, you're kind of saying that the function is what makes it what it is. It's like the part interrelates. Yeah, huh? And the function, the yeah. interrelationship is like... Yeah, so we look at it, that's exactly right, you know. You have the parts, and they relate together, and they function together. Yeah, and so then there's a car there. So then the car is the function. Yeah, but isn't this like I'm jumping out of the inherited system class, perhaps I'm jumping to uh, another type of car? <laughs> yeah. Because I don't understand the intrinsic... <laughs> right. Well, it looks like, you know, in one way of looking at it, it looks like the function is right there inside the parts. No, the, the function is, I define it like the type of relationship between the parts. Okay, so the function is the interrelationship among the parts. Where's that interrelationship? Can you find it? Something pushes. Something pulls. Something moves. But where's the relationship? What's the relationship? Yeah, but the relationship, isn't that something that you're labeling independence upon how different parts affect each other? Right, but it, you must express it, but the relationship isn't there findable. And the function isn't there findable either. The parts function together, but you can't find the function there. And the function alone is not the car. You see, but it's the same thing, you know. We're coming to the same thing. That it looks like there should be something there that we can isolate, is it? But as soon as we start to analyze, that thing falls apart too. So, so do that, you know, look, look, at the, look at the relationship, look at how the parts function together. How is that relationship a car? How is that functioning together a car? Here are the same parts in the same position and they could not function. So what's the function? So very interesting, you know. We're a little, we have to stop now, yeah. But write your questions down, and people who are listening, send your questions in. But spend spend some time this week, you know, and use the example of a car, use the example of the tree, use the example of one room, and then the walls and the furniture and stuff. Okay. 
Or you can look at your hand. Is it one thing? Or is it many things? What's the relationship between the fingers and the palm and the hand? So just take something, you know, something common around you. And and just start analyzing, you know, what are the parts? What's the whole? How do they relate? Are they the same? Are they different? Okay. And try and get this feeling of how something can exist by being merely imputed independent upon the collection of the parts, but not be the parts. And it kind of magically appears there, doesn't it? And yet it functions. No, you can't find it. Okay? Spend some time this week thinking about that. Okay. We'll dedicate.